0: The following is a Barrett Sports Media production. Every sports media star has a story. From the highs. We are number one. We just grabbed every key demographic. To the lows. You're fire! The path to success is always different. To help you learn more about the industry's top broadcasters, Barrett Sports Media brings you the Sports Talkers Podcast. Now, here's your host, Stephen Strong. Welcome in Sports Talkers Podcast episode 24 on the great BarrettSportsMedia.com. Welcome in, everyone. Steven Strom here, very special guest today. Someone that I really try to look at and emulate my career after, a former basketball player that got into broadcasting and now has ascended as one of the main voices of college basketball and one of the main voices at ESPN, and it's Jay Billis. I don't, is anyone not like Jay Billis? I mean, I feel like Jay Billis is one of those undefeated guys like Ashton Kutcher. Who doesn't like Ashton Kutcher? Who doesn't like Jay Billis? So I'm really excited to have Jay on. He's a really good spot. We talk about the transition from basketball to broadcasting and just kind of talk a little bit about the NIL and where the state of college basketball is at. And we kind of dig into his personal life as well growing up and get a feel for what Jay is on and off the court and the microphone. So uh, make sure to rate, subscribe, and review the sports talkers podcast on apple spotify wherever you get your podcast it's always appreciated without further ado let's get him on right now jay billis you know i I played division three basketball i knew i wanted to stay into basketball didn't know if it was journalism or broadcasting um tell me what you knew i guess growing up about sports broadcasting if it ever maybe came in the back of your mind this basketball thing doesn't work out is this something i can do
1: Well, it it was in the back of my mind, I guess. I mean, I'm a lot older than you, but when I was a kid, uh, former athletes started getting into broadcasting. And uh, so it was something that, you know, when I was in high school, when people asked, what do you want to have to, you know, what do you want to do after you uh, finish playing? um, I didn't really know. And so I would just, I I said, you know, maybe I'll get into broadcasting. And uh, as a result of that, you know, it appeared in newspaper articles uh, when I was a player in high school and I started being recruited and, um, certain, certain coaches would, you know, sort of sell their schools by saying, Hey, we have a broadcast department or we can introduce you to these people that, and so that's what happened when I went to Duke. I, I met a guy named Chuck Howard who was a executive producer at, uh, at ABC and I started working for ABC during the summer as a production assistant and a runner. And, uh, so I kind of got a taste of it that way, but I never, I never thought I would really get into it, honestly, because, uh, you know, I'd gone another direction. I was an assistant uh, graduate assistant at Duke. I thought I'd get into coaching. I went to law school, and really, I was practicing law. And I just got a phone call asking me if I'd do some some games on the radio, and that's that's sort of how it started.
0: Why'd you make the switch?
1: Uh, because it was just too much fun. Um, you know, I got enough work where I could could make the decision. I mean, I was practicing law full time and doing the broadcast stuff on the side. And it just became too much. I, I, had to, I had to choose one or the other. And uh, and broadcasting was a good enough opportunity where I could make that decision and go away from a really good law career.
0: What were some of the broadcasters, I guess, growing up that you listened to that you just were fond of early on?
1: Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. So I listened to Vince Scully on uh, Dodger games, I listened to Chick Hearn on Laker games. And- wow. Dick Enberg uh, did UCLA's basketball games and the California angels. And he had a show called sports challenge. And so I, I obviously listened to all those guys and then wound up working with Dick Enberg uh, later on. I mean, we did, we did at least 30, 40 plus games together over the years and became very good friends. So that was a, that was a, a dream come true for me.
0: When you got first got into broadcasting, let's first talk about ESPN. I mean, what did, I guess, what did you maybe think that was Easy going into it that you got there and you're like, oh wow! I thought that I'd be able to do this. This is a lot harder than I thought.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, none of it was easy. I didn't. I didn't consider any of it easy. Uh, I had a lot to learn. I probably still do uh, because I'm constantly looking at things and how to how to do it better. Um, the preparation I didn't think was hard because I had been a uh, an assistant coach and so scouting I felt was up my alley and after having been a, 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 litigation attorney for, for years and years, uh, I didn't think the prep was, was that hard. Um, so working hard was not an issue for me right. and put, putting my time in it, into it. Uh, but the nuts and bolts of broadcasting, you know, I, I think you have to, at least in my, my view, you have to get a feel for it, of when to say something, when not, uh, and probably for, for all of us. I mean, I think it's probably true for all of us now that, uh, Uh, the, the less we say, the better, um, that, that we could probably be more economical, all of us with our words. I know that's the thing I, I probably struggle with the most.
0: Yeah. The condensing of the point. I I know that's a big one, especially, uh, being an analyst on, on TV, that's kind of the main thing that you want to work on. Um, Give us a sense of your preparation because everyone's kind of different down here. I work for the Heat. Eric Reed is crazy. He'll come in with a bunch of different boards, and he might use 5% of that information throughout a game because a lot of it's improv. Give us a sense of your uh, preparation if you're doing a game Saturday night. When do you start? And just kind of give us some little tips because uh, I'm an analyst for FIU and Nova Southeastern down here. I would love to hear uh, some good advice.
1: Yeah, I think everybody does it differently. I mean, you know, I think uh, overall, I I feel like I have a foundation of knowledge of all the teams I'm covering and the players. I see a lot of them in high school, so uh, I know them already. Uh, But I do detailed scouting reports on each player and uh, in each team. uh, And I, I keep them with me. I carry them with me all the time during the season. Uh, so I can, I can look back at them if I need to at any given time. Uh, but if I have a specific game, I think you mentioned, you know, if we have a game on a, a Saturday, Saturday night, night, I go to, uh, you know, I watch film of the teams. So I watch, uh, I watch their games and, you know, I recently had a game with, uh, in, in London, uh, over the weekend, uh, you know, I Kentucky, Michigan, and I'd had Marist and Maine, oddly enough. And I don't see a lot of Marist and Maine during the course of the year. So I watched all of their games uh from this year, seven games apiece. And uh and I, you know, I decide, okay, I scout what what do they do? What are their tendencies? What offenses and defenses, what do they run on out of bounds under? What do they run on side out of bounds? Things like that. Yeah, you know, I'm not gonna diagram that stuff on every play or talk about it on every play, but there are times when it may come up to your point about using only five percent. And uh and I create scouting reports for the games. I mm-hmm. handwrite them. Uh, and, uh, and I do that just because of the way my pea brain works. I, I remember what I write down. And so I, I, it's rare that I consult it during the game. I maybe look at it during a timeout or I study it before the game or maybe a little bit at halftime, uh, and see if I've, uh, you know, maybe there's something that, uh, that I should put in there. And then, then you might look at it from time to time. It, it, you know, I have written down, all right, here are the guys to foul at end of game. Here are the, the guys to avoid fouling uh so I, there may be a, a percentage or two that i look at during the game to say okay well this guy shoots 80% from the line stuff like that um and i do that every game i'm pretty religious about it and uh, but but film watching and then i talk to coaches and uh i don't rely on what the coaches of the two teams tell me um cuz they tend to lie sometimes uh, <laughs> uh so um i talk to the the coaches they just played usually uh, if they've they've just played a game, I'll talk to an assistant and say, "Hey, well, you know, what what did you guys emphasize? What were you looking at? What hurt you? Things like that." Because coaches don't necessarily talk about their own team's weaknesses or things like that. Um, so I, I do a lot of that stuff, and uh, and just try to. I'm always looking for new ways to do it. So if you've got any pointers, I'd I'd be appreciative.
0: Absolutely, Jay Billis with us now. Um, just kind of curious on this a- as well, because you've worked with different broadcasters on radio and TV for such a long time. Fill in this blank: the best analysts do. Uh,
1: the best al- analysts, I think, that or at least the ones I enjoy listening to most, tell you why uh, things happen, and uh, not necessarily what is happening. Uh, you can see all the information we have on the screen now. You know what the score is. You can see what teams may be shooting. But why is this? Teach happening? It's just the why? Yeah, you know the why is it? Why is this guy good? Why why is this effective? Um, you know, sometimes like you'll see a team like uh, like I've been studying Alabama. I've got them coming up this weekend against Houston, and you know people think of Alabama as a three point shooting team, and they are. They make a lot of threes, but you have to you have to protect the paint against them. Uh, it's their two point game that kills you because when they can get into the lane, get into the basket, and, and force help, then they're spraying it out, and that's when they get their threes or in transition or after an offensive rebound. So it's kind of the why of where the threes are coming from. You know, you can look at the you can look at the the screen and tell, hey, they're you know they're seven out of twelve from three, but where how did they get them, and what does the other team need to do to to remedy that?
0: I'm sure a lot of networks uh, have offered you different things. What's kept you at ESPN for this long?
1: Uh, I love ESPN. Um, it's where I started. Uh, there's been no reason for me to to leave, and uh, you know I've had a great run there. You know I'm sure, just like my law firm, I've been with the same law firm for 30 years. Um, and I'm sure, you know, at some point, my the managing partner, of my law firm is going to walk in and say, "Hey, you know, it's been great, but pack your pack your stuff up <laughs> and get out." And I'm sure ESPN will do that at some point too. But um, you know, how could you ask for more? I work with great people and. Uh, you know, you know, this from, from your career, um, you know, the, the, the people that are on the air get all the, uh, you know, they get recognized, but the real superstars are the ones behind the camera Absolutely. And, and the ones I work with at ESPN. If there's anybody better, I haven't met them.
0: Uh, better Duke analysts, Jay Williams or JJ Redick. Uh,
1: that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I've never really thought about ranking them. They're both, um, they're both different which is great. They have different, you know, different ways of doing things. JJ's more, uh, I love listening to his podcast. Um, that old man of the three Very and good. then, and then he's doing a great job on the air, uh, as an analyst doing games, he's terrific in the studio. Um, Jay Williams cut his teeth in the studio. He's just a spectacular studio analyst. Now he's, you know, he's branched into so many different areas. It's hard to even keep track of where he is, but, but his radio show is great. Both of them are fantastic.
0: The NIL, you've been a pioneer on this. I've done, I think I did, had have done thirty-five papers in school. I mean, if the professors ever spoke to each other at Kane University, they would have caught on. Um, where are we at with the NIL, and where are you at as far as the state of, you know, players being compensated? Are you a little bit better with that now?
1: I've been for it from the beginning, uh, but we're just in the infancy stages of everything. So the NCAA finally relented after losing the Supreme Court case and having different states enact NIL laws. So they got backed into a corner and they had no real choice. But um, you know, right now, I don't think they know how to deal with it. So it's pretty clear that these schools want to compensate their athletes because they're all starting these collectives. and. Uh, they're competing uh, in, on the financial side for for talent. At some point, uh, we'll get to a, we'll get to revenue sharing. That's coming and it's coming pretty quickly. Uh, and and I think the easiest and cleanest thing to do is for the schools to just sign players to contracts, sign athletes to contracts. Uh, and I think we will get there at some point. But uh, but right now, you know, it, people are still kind of fumbling around in the dark trying to figure it out and what suits them. Um, but it's similar, I think, to when, uh, you know, back in the 80s, when, you know, the floodgates opened on revenues because of the, the last Supreme Court decision, which had to do more with how often, you know, teams could be on television and what they, uh, you know, what they did with their media rights. You know, for the first few years after that, they, did, they couldn't really figure it out. You know, they had a hard time figuring it out and they figured it out pretty quick. Look at the billions yep. of dollars they're making now. So it, it'll, it'll work much the same way.
0: Uh, last, I got maybe one or two left for you. We really appreciate the time, Jay. Uh, as far as old coaches, old school coaches, rather, I should have said that to begin with. You know, the Tom Izzo's, the guys that are yellers, right? And, and I'm going to bounce around sports for you because I'm a Viking fan, and they went from Mike Zimmer to Kevin O'Connell. Mike Zimmer, an old school guy, Bill Parcells guy, over to Kevin O'Connell, um, who's a little bit more of a player coach guy, communicates really efficiently, even down here uh, covering Eric Spolstra, a lot more of a, a player coach do you think that we've seen just the are we done with old school coaches that get in your face and yell and you know what I'm talking about uh have we kind of turned over to that now in college basketball
1: I don't know I mean I you know I I, I think I know what you mean by old school coaches you, you know what I'm saying i I think I do um but you know so there are a couple different issues one the days of the abusive coaches are over so coaches could get away with that 30 years ago and and be abusive um that's over uh and if coaches don't realize that they the the ones verbally? who don't realize it verbally whatever I mean physical I can't imagine you well, could yes. you could get away with that now but yeah what, what what you know I don't know any other kind that that you'd be dealing with but you know it, it, there's a I don't I'm not even sure it's a fine line but 30 40 years ago not only could you get away with that at times it was celebrated And I think it was unacceptable then, but it was accepted. Uh, It is clearly unacceptable now and it is not accepted. So, um, but there's a difference between, you know, raising your voice and and how you do it. If you do it in a way to have positive action come from it and it's demanding without being demeaning, then it's fine. Mm. Um, You know, that's the issue. Is it demeaning? Um, And, and so like when I hear players coach, Sometimes I'm not sure what that means. Um, Does that mean permissive, or does it mean, uh, you know, like you can you can say incredibly damaging things to someone and never raise your voice, Uh, and you can also yell all the time and and have an incredibly positive message that's acted upon positively and is uplifting. So it's not a question just of volume, Uh, but I do I do think um, the old way of you know when I was playing. You heard a lot of my way of the highway, and now you know if you say my way the highway, don't be surprised if the players take the highway. And and Go in so that portal. To, yeah, you have to be a little bit, you, know, you have to be cognizant of that. But you know, Tom Izzo has never had a problem um, with players.
0: It was a big issue in the tournament. I remember the lefty. I can't. I can't remember his name. That was like a huge story, and I was just Gabe like, Brown. Yeah. So so when
1: when that happened. Um, I came on the, we came on the air and had to comment on it afterwards, the ESPN and our studio shows, our game day show. And one of the things I said was, was that doesn't bother me. I know Tom Izzo. I know where that's coming from, but I did say, but if you're a younger coach, I would, I would avoid that. Like Tom Izzo's got the credibility, would uh, not only with his players, but, but with, uh, with administration, the public, all that stuff where that's not going to be an issue for him. He might have to listen to it when, when Schlepp's like us talk about it or right now, <laughs> but it's not going to be a long-term issue for Absolutely. a younger coach. That's going to be harder to, harder to explain and harder to deal with. And so that's the way I, I looked at it. And I, I believe that, um, you know, I, I think like, if you look back sort of, if, to me, if a coach has a, a closed practice, so so if if you behave differently in a closed practice versus an open one you ought to think about why that that's what i would ask and uh because uh, i don't have any problem with uh with hard coaching um but but there is there there's not a fine line between hard coaching and abuse um so abusive language and all that and you know look when i was a player coaches called name you know they called you names and all that stuff it's one thing to say hey you know, you got to be tougher and get that rebound. Uh, versus you are an, you you are this, uh, right? And and throw some pejorative term out or misogynistic term, which used to be used back in the day. Those things don't fly anymore, nor should they. They shouldn't have flown at the time, uh, but but times have changed, and rightfully so.
0: And a huge shout out to Jay Billis for joining us today. We know he's a busy man, especially this time of the year with college basketball in full swing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure to check out the site, BarrettSportsMedia.com. Not only our podcast, but also our articles that we post every single day, keeping you up to date as far as the sports media world is concerned. Have a great rest of your weekend, everyone, and we will talk to you Thursday here on the Sports Talkers podcast. Thank you for listening to the Sports Talkers podcast with Stephen Strong. A reminder that each episode can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcasting platforms. To stay up to date on future episodes, Visit veritsportsmedia.com.